focus on headline. And let's take a look at what major issues are making the headlines here on Focus on Headline. For this, uh, joining us in the studio, we have our Friday reporters, Kwon Soa and Son Bo Gyeong. Guys, welcome back. Happy Friday. Wow. Oh. <laughs> Something about Soa always, like, you know, she's, she's got... I get into my partner's brains and then... <laughs> <laughs> Her and Chihi, and then on Tuesdays, and then on Fridays with his so I'm not the only one? <laughs> no, no. All right, uh, guys, we are going to, as always, uh, kick things off with some uh, economic uh, news here. We've been talking about the Korean won depreciating against the U.S. dollar for some quite time. Uh, this time, uh, although it did almost hit the, uh, the 1,401 mark, uh, it kind of actually ended a little bit uh, higher against the U.S. dollar on this Friday. So let's start us off with the latest figures here. Sure. Korea's local currency ended at 1,388 won against the U.S. dollar, which is up 5.71 from the previous session's close. The Korean won rebounded in the afternoon after starting off at 1,399 won earlier in the day, close to the 1,400 level. So in intraday trading, it was a new year yearly low. Watchers have been closely observing the foreign exchange market due to the steep decline. The Korean currency did not dip as low as 1,400 since the Asian financial crisis and the global financial crisis. The U.S. currency is gaining strength day by day, and uh, that's been pressuring the won and is prompting investors to avoid risks and buy dollars to be on the safe side. The won to dollar exchange rate is therefore to continue to lead to high tensions. Uh, meanwhile, South Korean shares fell for the third straight day this Friday, also on the back of uh, U.S. economic data that hint on another huge interest rate hike by the Fed next week. The benchmark Cosby dropped 19.05 points to 2,382.78. Again, uh, it's going whether or not it's going to hit 1,400, uh, we're not 100% sure. But the consensus is when we do see the FOMC meeting results and uh, they do raise it uh, possibly 75 basis point, then, of course, the Bank of Korea is not going to be able to keep up with that. We might see it breach that 1,400 mark. How much of a government intervention is going to help? We'll have to see. But uh, it does seem like uh, just kind of looking at the economy, it's going to take time for the economy to recover due to the prolonged inflation, uh, weak export figures, and so forth. Uh, Pogyang, tell us, uh, what does the, the finance ministry say in its uh, latest Green Book? Right. So as you know, the Green Book is an economic assessment report published every month by the Ministry of Economy and Finance. So according to the latest Green Book, the South Korean economy is expected to go down a bumpy road. So now there are external and internal factors behind such gloomy forecasts. If we look at the external factors first, the U.S. has carried out interest rate hikes and this propensity might continue. And China is still taking strict antivirus measures. The energy market remains fragile with a prolonged war in Ukraine. And now narrowing down to the domestic factors, South Korea is seeing high inflation with a slowdown in export growth. Since last June, the finance ministry has been mentioning the possibility of an economic slowdown, saying that external factors contributed to high inflation and weakened exports, despite moderately recovered domestic demand. 
In fact, consumer prices jumped 5.7% from a year earlier due to high energy and commodity prices. In August this year, exports rose 6.6% on year to reach 56.67 billion U.S. dollars. Exports also expanded for 22 consecutive months as of August. But we should note that the pace of export expansion is slowing down. Since June, export has been logging a single-digit growth instead of the double-digit growth for more than a year. Also, exports of semiconductors fell for the first time in 26 months. Yeah, semiconductors might be seeing a base effect, especially during the, uh, the, the height of the pandemic. There was a great deal of demand for semiconductors, and now that everything is kind of uh, panning out, uh, might be going down. Also, there is a shortage of uh, semiconductors as well. They're just not able to produce as much, uh, hence the, the uh, downtick in the export numbers here. Uh, I'm sure we'll continue to uh, keep a close eye on the economy and especially with the FOMC meeting that's, I believe, slated for next week, uh, how that's going to impact us here in South Korea. Uh, in the meantime, uh, we have the, the EDSCG uh, meeting in Washington, but uh, apart from the deterrence measures against North Korea, uh, so another important topic did come up in the meeting as well. So can you tell us more about this? Sure. So South Korea Vice Foreign Minister Cho Hyun-dong and Vice Defense Minister Shin Bom-chol are currently on a trip in the U.S. to attend a high-level session on extended deterrence strategies against North Korea's threats on Friday. Uh, so I think the exact meeting has probably has maybe not begun yet. But uh, on this occasion, the officials also had a clear message from Seoul to deliver regarding the U.S.'s new Inflation Reduction Act, or IRA, which poses a threat to Korea. Korean car makers. Uh, during a meeting with U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, the two vice ministers conveyed Seoul's concerns over discrimination against electric vehicles manufactured in Korea on the back of the U.S.'s new legislation. Vice Minister Cho said to told reporters uh, that uh, they have delivered. Korea's concerns and requested a swift review on the issue. Sullivan said the NSC is sincerely reviewing the situation and called on continuous Seoul-Washington talks so that South Korean companies' losses will be minimized. Cho added that the security advisor appeared to be aware of even the most detailed concerns Korea has and that the U.S. will review those concerns under the lead of the NSC. He also said the U.S. is showing its willingness on this front uh, just by the fact that this consultation was held between the U.S. National Security Advisor with vice minister-level officials from Korea. Cho and Shin also mentioned the IRA issue in separate talks with Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman and to political figures they met as well. Yeah, and this is good news, and uh, we've mentioned this before. We were seeing how all the South Korean officials in any kind of uh, scenery, any kind of meetings that they're holding, they need to continue to bring up this issue as much as possible to show uh, that South Korea is, again, I mentioned this at the end of the show yesterday, that we can't be a pushover country anymore. And of course, uh, during the UN General Assembly, uh, we're hoping that President Yoon Sa-gyar, when he meets up with uh, President Joe Biden, that he's going to make his stance very clear, uh, especially on the IRA. Uh, but uh, of course, uh, the EDSCG, uh, the importance is on, uh, of course, North Korea. What about the talks on the extended their turns? Right. So back to the actual purpose of the trip, the first EDSCG session between South Korea 
Korea and the U.S. since 2018 uh, is taking place this Friday local time. Ahead of it, during the meeting with U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan again, Sullivan expressed his hopes for a detailed and effective measure to be agreed upon during the EDSCG meeting that reaffirms the U.S.'s commitment to its extended deterrence against North Korean nuclear threats. Vice Minister Su and Shin told reporters that strengthened cooperation between South Korea and the U.S. is more important than ever amid North Korea's increased nuclear and missile threats. Su also hinted that based on the South Korean government's goal and the U.S.'s range of accepting that, uh, a final result is expected Friday. So let's see what kind of commitment and um, concrete or practical executions could look like. What we know, though, is that Vice Defense Minister Shin Bom-chol has been briefed on key U.S. nuclear assets during a military base visit outside Washington, D.C. on Thursday, which might have got to do with the outcomes of the talks uh, Friday. And I think I saw pictures of um, how he was with a fighter jet. I think it was a B-52 fighter oh, jet. Wow. And uh, the picture showed how he was kind of... Um, Touching, touching the plane and uh, the B fifty two bomber, yeah. right? Bomber, yeah. yeah. I'm reading this off uh, an article right now. Yeah, the fighter jet and the bomber is yeah. a little bit different, but uh, <laughs> I mean, if you're, if you're if you're not an expert I'm a in military translator, no, no, well, no, well, no, not necessarily translation. I think it's like if you don't know much about like no, but uh, the, is bomber. Yeah, yeah you're yeah, right. right. But bomber is the B fifty two bomber. I'm not an expert in military goods, but I just know that it's B fifty two is a bomber. But I think this is you know. When it comes to North Korea, I think uh, talks on deterrence is now more important because I feel like no matter how much they continue to talk about denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula and denuclearizing uh, North Korea, that that's just not going to happen right now. And so the next step, I think, is for South Korea to really... Uh, ramp up uh, the deterrence uh, this with of course uh, the collaboration with uh, uh, South Korea and the United States and so is showing me a picture of him touching the B-52 yes. bomber uh, <laughs> he's literally just touching the yeah, <laughs> but, yeah the defense ministry actually has released this picture and uh, the report says that it's uh, pretty rare that they kind of show these kind of pictures so it might mean something yeah yeah definitely and um, so. also uh, Esther you earlier mentioned that on every occasion uh, South Korea should try to you know mention the IRA issue yeah. when they go to the US and Another thing that South Korea now has to do whenever they travel anywhere the is World Expo. yes, exactly. <laughs> so on a separate note, the two South Korean senior officials during their trip also asked for the U.S.'s support for Busan's bid for the 2030 World Expo. You know, I don't know. I maybe it's because I, what is it? I'm, I'm jumping gun here, but Busan uh, seems like a very appealing place for the next World Expo. I mean, not the mm-hmm. next World Expo, but the World Expo in 2030. I mean, especially with uh, how big the South Korean culture has gotten and uh, how how much people want to visit uh, South Korea now. I think Busan's a, a great place for that. So I'm also uh, pitching my uh, mm-hmm. my push for uh, the 2030 mm-hmm. World Expo there. Uh, in the meantime, China's top legislator, Li Sang-shu, uh, will be meeting with President Yoon Suk-yeol. Uh, have they met already? And also, what can we expect from this meeting, Po Gyeong? Right. So Li Sang-shu, China's third-ranked official 
and chief of the Standing Committee of the National People's Congress, will be staying in Seoul for three days with his government delegation. During his visit, Lee is, was expected to meet with President Yoon Seok-yeol and Kim Jin-pyo, the National Assembly Speaker. And this is the update that I got this afternoon. National Assembly Speaker Kim Jin-pyo and Lee Jang-shu met today and agreed to beef up strategic communications to resolve North Korea's nuclear issue and maintain peace on the Korean Peninsula. In a joint press briefing, Lee said that both sides shared the idea that strategic communications is critical to maintaining peace and prosperity of the Korean Peninsula. Lee also said that both sides understood that mutual interest should be respected and that sensitive matters should be dealt properly for a healthy and stable relationship. And here, this sensitive matter can be referred to as the thought system, which has been expressed many times by China as a sensitive issue. However, it's not known yet whether Lee has met President Yoon. So that's the update that I have currently. Yeah, I I mean, again, I mentioned this before, but it does seem like China is continuing to push for better ties with South Korea. The only thing really standing in the way is the sad issue, which uh, it's it's really hard for South Korea to make a decision on that, especially because it has the United States in it. And the United States is not going to, obviously not going to listen to what China uh, once out of this and there's a lot of uh, some of the experts were saying that uh, on, on the speculations of whether or not Xi Jinping will visit uh, Seoul anytime soon they're saying unless like South Korea decides they're going to you know, lift the thatch system it's highly unlikely that he's going to be visiting uh, let's move on to another very interesting meeting here uh, this being held by speaking of which uh, Chinese President Xi Jinping and his Russian counterpart Vladimir Putin uh, one thing I can tell uh, it probably was a very amicable summit from what I understand. So so tell us more about this. Sure. So for the first time in seven months, so for the first time since the Beijing Winter Olympics and for the first time since Russia invaded Ukraine, Presidents Xi and Putin met in person on the sidelines of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, a Eurasian organization that mainly centers on security-related issues. So that means around for the first time in seven months uh, they are uh, they got together. And uh, the SCO is being held in Uzbekistan's Samarkand. On Thursday, Xi and Putin exchanged views on their bilateral ties as well as regional and international issues of shared interest and showed willingness of strengthening strategic cooperation. Also, the two showed support in each other's nation's most biggest issues at hand. What do you guys think this could be? For, uh, for U.S.? China? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, well, for China, it's mm-hmm. Taiwan. Yes, and for uh, the, uh, Russia, Russia, Ukraine. Yes. <laughs> right, so Putin, uh, first off, made clear he backs China over Taiwan. He said, We intend to firmly adhere to the principle of one China. We condemn provocations by the United States and their satellites in the Taiwan Strait. This remark uh, appears to be referring also to U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan last month, followed by trips by U.S. and European lawmakers, as well as continued arms sales, uh, U.S. arms sales to Taiwan. The Chinese government reportedly highly evaluated Putin's position, and so did Putin in regards to Beijing's stance on the Ukraine war. 
we highly appreciate the well-balanced position of our Chinese friends in connection with the Ukraine crisis, is what reportedly Putin said. China, in its later released statement, said that President Xi emphasized that Beijing will work with Moscow to, quote, extend strong mutual support on issues concerning each other's core interests. So they didn't make it that directly, mm. but uh, it seems that they're referring to Taiwan and Ukraine. Uh, in his opening remarks, she also said that China is ready to work with Russia to fulfill responsibilities, quote, in injecting stability into a world of change and disorder. So another indirect support message. But it seems like China seems to be a little careful to not provoke the U.S. any yeah, further. And yeah. that's also mm. because we can see uh, how the economy is going in China. And uh, the two sides, meanwhile, agreed to strengthen bilateral trade, including that of energy. Uh, China said uh, deepen practical cooperation also in agriculture connectivity and in other areas is uh, what they decided on. On, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, you have more? Uh, I, I just wanted to mention that I found it very interesting how uh, Putin and Xi we're sitting really far away from each other. And I think that's because still China is worried about COVID-19. But, but Putin always <laughs> kind of does that. Putin at any time he has a meeting. Right, that too. But but I heard that uh, President Xi didn't even attend lunch with other leaders. Oh, and that because of the virus. So maybe that's also one. But yeah, you're right. Putin always does that. Yeah, no, <laughs> I was just going to say Putin. Like that's, that's like his thing. Like He always <laughs> comes to these summits like an hour late. Uh. Uh, to show that everyone waits for me uh, and also when they have these summits like the table is like super long and so I was thinking maybe that I was going to say uh, on Thursday uh, the IAEA the International Atomic Energy Agency uh, they, they passed a they basically pushed forward a resolution calling on uh, Russia to give up relinquish its control over the uh, nuclear facilities in Ukraine uh, you know who voted two countries that voted against it who, who would it be Russia and, and China, China. Of <laughs> they, they, they basically, I mean, the, we, we see that even with like North Korea, right? With mm. the UNSC resolutions, uh, they're the two countries that vote against it. Uh, but uh, it's, I mean, they're going to stick together throughout all this. Uh, One yeah. little thing I want to also mention is, uh, I mentioned that the talks between these two leaders happened at the SCO, uh, which stands for the Shanghai Corporation Organization. Okay. But uh, this is also kind of significant because this organization, I think, is made up of around eight countries that are kind of against the U.S. Mm. So on that front, they also filed for more cooperation oh, they have on their own, uh, trade and other It's a united issues. front. Yeah, oh, they have yeah. their own quad uh, right. going on there. Uh, we talked about uh, the remarks uh, coming back and forth uh, from China and Russia, from Xi Jinping to uh, Vladimir Putin. Uh, what's been the, the response from the White House? Right. So after that summit and in a press briefing, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre expressed concerns over the bonding of Xi Jinping and Putin. She said, quote, we've made clear our concerns about the depth of China's alignment and ties with Russia, and this meeting is an example of that alignment, quote. And of course, the U.S. government imposed another round of uh, sanctions on individuals and groups that have facilitated Russia's war in Ukraine. And let's get more on that as well. Right. So on the same day Xi Jinping and Putin met in Uzbekistan, the Office of Foreign Assets Control of the U.S. Treasury Department announced that new sanctions are imposed on facilitators that advance Moscow's objectives in Ukraine, both before and after Russia's invasion. 
22 individuals and two entities were on the list, including Vladimir Valerievich Komlev, the CEO of the National Payment Card System, which is being widely used by Russia to circumvent international sanctions. The Treasury Department stressed that this round of sanctions was in line with the ones taken by the U.S. Commerce and State Department to control exports to Russia and target Russia's defense and high-tech industries. The U.S. State Department also announced another set of sanctions designating 22 of Russia's proxy officials, including those who have overseen the theft of hundreds of thousands of tons of Ukrainian grain. At least 23 officials and 31 entities that helped Russia's invasion and those that are included in the State Department's list will be prohibited from doing business within the U.S. territories and all assets will be confiscated. Secretary of the Treasury Department Janet Yellen said, quote, The United States will continue to take strong actions to hold Russia accountable for its war crimes, atrocities and aggression. Yeah, and uh, of course, uh, for the longest time, the biggest question is when this war in Ukraine is going to end. uh, From what I understand, just a bit of an update. I I know uh, Ukraine's been uh, regaining some of its territory in the uh, the, the Donbass region, right, the Luhansk region uh, as well. But uh, they're saying that now Russia is on the defensive and now it's making it tougher and tougher for them to go on the same pace, uh, the pace of advance that we've been seeing in, in, in the past few weeks now. So it does seem like right now the war is probably highly likely going to go on till next year here. Uh, The G7, meanwhile, have agreed to get tougher on China, not surprising in terms of trade, uh, as officials of the group of seven major economies got together in Germany. Uh, So uh, tell us more. Right. So the G7, according to Germany's economy minister, Robert Habeck, have pledged to take a tougher and more coordinated position toward China in regards to trade. Now, Esther, you said not surprisingly, but I was kind of surprised by how tough the statement was was actually by the German economy. It was tougher than Mm -hmm. we were expecting. Okay. Uh, The statement was made on Thursday local time after a G7 trade meeting in Neuhardenberg in eastern Germany. The German minister said that bringing up the China issue was part of efforts to ensure high international standards in the trade sector and that China should be prevented in overpowering others. He told reporters the naivety toward China is over. The time when one said trade no matter what regardless of the social or humanitarian standards, is something we shouldn't allow ourselves anymore. But that was actually referring to more to Germany's stance, because a few days before, he also hinted that the German government is working on a new trade policy with China to reduce dependence on raw materials, batteries and semiconductors from China. So it's not just about tough words, but actual policies. The minister vowed to persuade the European Union to take similar actions, as well as G7 members. Now, interestingly, China has been Germany's biggest trade partner for the past six years. And Habeck also said that China was a welcoming trading partner. However, Germany won't allow, quote, China's protectionism to distort competition and would not hold back criticism of human rights violations under threat of losing business. This according to Reuters that spoke with the minister earlier this week. Uh, Meanwhile, the G7 joint statement uh, included concerns about a number of unfair practices but did not name China directly. I mean, this is where it gets tough, right? Um, 
it's kind of the same way with like uh, Russian energy uh, sources. It's like they're putting all these sanctions on in because of the war in Ukraine, and they're saying, "Listen, we have to cut back on energy use, uh, energy you know, purchasing energy from Russia." And yet, they're so reliant on energy from Russia. Like natural gas is going to be the big thing come winter time. And I think already like Russia cutting, uh, cutting back on them saying that we're not going to import any of these, export any of these uh, natural gas anymore. Uh, they're on panic mode. But it's the other thing with China when it comes to like trade, right? Like everything's from China. Like are, can they really kind of regulate all this and try to, because it does seem like they're trying to more and more isolate China mm-hmm. uh, out of the global economy here. But uh can they pull it off uh, is the thing because, I mean, the repercussions of this is, is it's pretty hard. I mean, it's, it's just as much as I'm sure they want to isolate China, it's really going to be hard to do so. Mm-hmm. And I think well, one thing, oh, yeah, go, this go one point, I think this is why the cooperative relationship between Russia and China will be further strengthened yeah, because yeah. the all the support, I mean, the gas, whatever they have that they won't be able to export to Germany and European countries. Now, Russia will have to rely on exporting it to China because China is right now struggling anyway from the pandemic and is struggling from a weaker economy. So that's why the relationship and cooperation will be further beefed up. I was going to say something similar, but what I want to add to that is that China really does seem to have the upper hand in China-Russia relations right now. This is why I think China, like Putin, in in the wordings that he had in his support for China, he was quite really clear on, I'm on China's side when it comes to Taiwan. Uh, I'm against the U.S. But China is kind of very vague right now and knows that Russia needs China right now. So... Mm. You could really see that in the meeting, in, yeah, in my that, opinion. Although China never is as, you know, direct as other countries, mm. maybe um, Western countries. But also, I think if China makes it really clear, like if they go, we are, I mean, the, the, I think Xi Jinping has already shown support of Russia for their war in Ukraine. But not uh, all the sanctions, right? No, 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 mm. no, not the sanctions or anything like that. But it, it was very ambiguous. I think it wasn't like an official statement out to the world, like, us here in China, uh, we are in full support of uh, a Russian invasion of Ukraine, and we're going to assist them. That was the other thing that I think that the U.S. is afraid of, is that the China might start assisting them uh, with military equipment, because, I mean, Russia's in a situation where they're they're buying ammunition from North Korea and they're mm. buying drones from Iran and things like that. Uh, if China starts supplying, and I think China also knows that if they start supplying uh, Russia with military equipment, then they're going to also get hit with like sanctions left mm. and right. And they're already, their economy is pretty, I mean, it's, it's bad right now because of their zero COVID policy, which I am not sure why. They're, they're, they're still uh, mm. I- implementing that when they're seeing like 12 cases or something like that. Mm. I was actually going to say that China um, is is not that strongly against the sanctions that the other countries are putting on Russia. Yeah. That is what I wanted to say. Yeah, because they don't want to get I, sanctioned. They yeah. also don't want to get sanctioned mm. too, though. But because this is a very careful situation where U.S. and China have to be careful, that's why also the White House Press Secretary, Karine, she didn't want to mention furthermore so she just said like one sentence or mm. two and that was it and she declined on commenting uh, furthermore i don't know if people understand the, the severity of this again uh, i'm gonna say this again teams forming right uh russia and china I mean, you're already seeing this and then they you know i think russia's already mentioned like all right north korea you know get mm. in on it with us right which i mean that's like north korea has like two allies and it's russia and china and it 
yeah, that's that's three countries there. So hopefully it doesn't turn out too bad, but I am very much concerned uh, with uh, how Russia is using their energy uh, as kind of a leverage to kind of uh, try to win this war and they're trying to back off uh, the EU and things like that because there could be a bigger clashes ahead. That's what happens when you have people need energy. Uh, let's move on to COVID-19 cases here. Uh, I guess this is some positive note. I'm kind of surprised how much it's dipped over in a span of just a single day. Uh, South Korea's new COVID-19 cases uh, below 60,000, but uh, the KDCA did issue an influenza warning. So, uh, Pogyang, tell us more about this. Right. So, according to the Korea Disease Control and Prevention Agency, South Korea reported 51,874 new COVID-19 infections, including 348 from overseas, bringing the total to 24,316,302 cases. There were 60 new deaths added on Friday. The number of critically ill patients still stood at 516. Lee Gi-il, second vice health minister, said in the press briefing today that the upward trend right after the Chuseok holidays was, was just a temporary thing and that once again the country is seeing a downward trend. He stressed that South Korea was able to handle well without any social distancing measures over the holidays. And KDCA also said that we can expect a twindemic this winter, which is the combination of the influenza and the still ongoing pandemic. And also, Jung Gi-seok, the head of the government's COVID-19 special response team, said that indoor masks could be removed next spring, if early. This comment was made after the head of WHO said recently that the world is in the path of seeing the end of the tunnel. Uh, I want to kind of mention that because that, that, that was something that we talked to. So were you here? We, were you here when we were talking about that? Uh, WHO Chief Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus saying that we might be seeing the end of uh, the COVID-19 pandemic soon? Mm, no, I, I don't think so. What do you think about that? Oh. <laughs> do you think the world is really on path right now uh, towards the very end of the road when it comes to the pandemic? To be honest, I haven't been really checking the global figures lately. That's the thing. But, I, I don't think no. That's the thing. I don't think anyone is checking. It's not just you. I don't think anybody's checking the global figures because people are not testing as much. Uh, they don't even think that the the numbers that are coming in are real. Uh, but just according to like the pace that we're seeing here, right? I mean, we're see, we saw the BA4 and BA5 and how uh, transmissible it is. And the fact that we're still getting 60 people on a daily basis who are you know, dying from this, uh, to me, is a little bit uh, concerning. Any, any inputs, guys, with the, uh, the COVID-19? Are you guys optimistic, uh, pessimistic? I think uh, it's not yet the end of the COVID-19 pandemic, but already many, many countries are just treating it like an endemic. So we're just getting more and more numb. That's it. Yeah, I mean, you just desensitize, desensitize, mm -hmm. right? Uh, Pogyan, what about yourself? Well, I get confused sometimes because, you know, now that I had COVID and I was quite okay and my family as well, but then I heard from a friend who said that, you know, one of the relatives died right after, you know, having COVID. So sometimes for, you know, for many people, maybe it's just an endemic, but still there are people who are suffering harshly from this one, this pandemic. So I, I'm not sure what kind of a stance I should have. Yeah, so, so they're saying what some people are saying is that uh, even with the common flu mm. or like the common cold, people yeah, are people, dying. Yes, right. 
but it's just that we're but no, we we don't keep track of mm-hmm. how many people die on a daily basis with like the seasonal flu or maybe even the common cold and yes you can die uh from from the common cold uh if you have underlying illnesses and things like that uh, because we don't keep track we don't know if this number 60 people dying on a daily basis uh, uh, due to covid-19 it's it's a high number or if it's a low number or anything like mm. that it's really difficult to compare mm. that but then what i want to say is that uh, we have an addition of of a disease, yeah. which means without that disease, would we would have less of patients and less patients dying. Right, and then that's and, a, that's mm. a big concern with the twindemic now, right? right? Yeah, that's what exactly what you're talking about. Um, but speaking of which, Soa, speaking of the twindemic, uh, for the first time since 2019, the South Korean government issuing a seasonal influenza outbreak advisory here. Uh, so uh, tell us and uh, give us the updates on this advisory. Sure. So the Korea Disease Control and Prevention Agency has issued this advisory this Friday. It's the first time in three years because we had rather low numbers of seasonal flu patients during COVID. But that does not mean that uh, we just subtract the number of um, uh, flu patients from the COVID patients. We still had too many COVID patients throughout yeah, the past yeah. three years, right? But now we've been continuously warning of a twindemic, right? And the figures already show that uh, an, a, a bigger number of um, seasonal flu, flu patients could be coming up this uh, fall and winter because uh, the KDCA uh, said that between the 4th and the 10th of this month, uh, the number of suspected Seasonal flu patients stood at 5.1 per 1,000, and that's already past the 4.9 per 1,000. That's the standard for when they have to uh, issue this kind of advisory. Um, It's nothing unusual, though, because before COVID, I checked that almost every year we have an advisory for the seasonal flu. So it's nothing really unusual. However, what's kind of unusual is that they issued this already in mid-September, because usually it happens later, around November, sometimes even December. So that is why the health authorities are asking for people to get vaccinated, especially uh, babies and uh, young children. Uh, pregnant women and also other people that could be more affected by uh, the influenza. And uh, the vaccine campaign is going to start soon. It's the 21st of this month, uh, if I'm correct. Yeah, next week. Let me yeah, just yeah. check this figure real quick. But yes, it's going to start this month. Um, again, it, uh, I think the other question, I'm, I'm also kind of wondering when I could start getting uh, my new. Uh, COVID-19 vaccine shots too because I think my immunity is starting to uh, wane. wane here. It's been <laughs> it's been a while since I had last uh, had COVID uh, back in the uh, end of uh, February. It's been a good seven months uh, since that. But I do get vaccinated for the flu and it's not just for myself. It's just kind of to uh, protect my kid and my kid gets uh, the flu shot because my goodness, you send them to daycare and they catch everything right. and they bring it over home, right? Mm. Uh, guys, thank you very much for your reports today and your insights on some of these issues please please stay safe and we'll see you guys again next week vaccination starts on the 21st all right there you go (laughs) see you next week see you you can listen to korea now with me sj lee by downloading the arirang radio application or tune in online by visiting www.arirangradio.com so make sure you tune in mondays through fridays 6 p.m to 8 p.m korea time